Jeannie Venasco is the author of two memoirs. Her latest, Things We Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl, was named a New York Times Editor's Choice, a Time Magazine must-read book of the year, and the 2020 winner of the Ohioana Book Award in nonfiction. Her debut, The Glass Eye, was honored as Indie Next and Indie's Introduced Selections by the American Booksellers Association. She lives in Baltimore and teaches at Townsend University. Jeannie Venasco, welcome to The Creative Process. Hello, thank you so much for having me. And so, we, you know, we're really just taken away by the honesty and intimacy and bravery of your memoirs. But to give those who aren't familiar yet with your work, just, I believe you've chosen a passage from near the beginning of things we didn't talk about when I was a girl. Yes, yeah, I'll, I'll just read a very short passage there. It's from the section after the prologue, the first chapter, there are gaps. I already predict failure. I'm afraid he'll say no, or even worse, ignore me. But why wouldn't he agree to speak with me? He owes me that much. I could disguise his identity, change his name. Combing a naming dictionary for some rough translation of friend, I first land on Aldwin, old friend. I picture a knight, an 11th century Norman invader, a sorcerer in a fantasy novel, a president of a Martha's Vineyard men's club, a child of artfully tattooed parents. Between 1880 and 2016, the Social Security Administration recorded only 129 babies named Aldwin. My former friend's pseudonym should be common, modern, unassuming. I want readers to know someone with the same name. Phil means friend, but he's not the Phil type. Phil orders everybody drinks. Phil shakes your hand, says, call me Phil. Phil's too casual, too laid back. My former friend may have slacked from one day into the next, but he wavered between anxious and depressed. Philip then? Philip contains friend, friend of horses, but I doubt he ever touched a horse. He preferred the indoors, rarely strained from couch, desk, and bed. His white skin burned easily. Forget name origins. What about the origins of words that are also names, like Nick? Some of Nick's obsolete meanings, reckoning or account, slang for the vagina. But I dated a Nick in college briefly between boyfriends. I'd prefer that memories of Nick, him telling me, I could tell you weren't very cultured when I met you. And how have you not heard of broken social scene? And I don't understand why you won't sleep with me if you like me, not influence this project. Though I like the sound of Nick. So I want a monosyllabic word that works as a name and contains a K. Mark maybe? Its main definition, a boundary, and that's what this is about, boundaries. Perfect, Mark then. Why should I protect Mark? I enter his work address in Google Street View. Instead of his pale yellow office building on an industrial one-way street, I aim my view at the clouds and telephone wires. The wires don't line up precisely. There are gaps of just sky, gaps between communication, I should stop searching for metaphors. 
Mark and I stopped speaking to one another in college. He was in Ohio studying engineering. I was in Illinois majoring in journalism. He dropped out shortly after we last spoke, which is not to say I'm the reason or that what happened between us is the reason, but I hope it's the reason or rather what he did to me during winter break of our sophomore year is I hope the reason I can't forget. I was passed out. And it's so conveys the complexity of those those things that happen to us and then you're you're just going through maturity and and you don't know and so we I I got from it I I everyone would get something different from your memoirs is that it it conveys that in between that not knowing not even knowing whether to call it rape you know at, when it's a friend yeah yeah, and that's what interested me about this particular, it's weird to talk about it as, well, it really interested me, but as a writer, there is a distance that it provides, which is both exciting, but also concerning as I was working on the project, because I started to see it as this intellectual exercise and forget that, oh, it happened to me, like these, like, what are my feelings outside of writing the book? And so but what interested me about this particular experience is because I didn't have the language to attach to it in the way that I had the language to attach to a later experience that I would have no trouble calling rape. But what happened between me and I call Mark in the book, I didn't know what to call that for the longest time. So I didn't know how to feel about it. And so as a writer, that, that interests me when I don't have the words for something when I sense that I'm going to, I mean, inevitably I'm going to, to fail with whatever I work in, because when I start working on a project, it's never, I, I have this, you know, this wonderful idealized sense of what I'm going to do. And it's impossible for a creative work to live up to that in some ways, but that is the pleasure of writing. And so coming at this from a sense of when, you know, when I write, I already predict failure coming at this from a sense of, okay, I don't know if I'm going to be able to pull this off for all different sorts of reasons, but that is what excites me and energizes me as a writer, as a creative person. Yes. And it's so interesting, this, um, this courage, because it was something that you wrote many, you'd already published your, your other memoir and it just, you know, you know, resurfaced as a small part of that, right? And in in reading other memoirs that people have written about, you know, rape or, or being molested, you know, it's strange because I, I've always wondered about the courage it takes to speak out, you know, to speak out in, in any form, but in a book that's definite and then you have to go and you have to give readings and it, it's kind of strange reliving of, of the process. And I always wondered how, how people, and we should say mostly women, but not only exclusively women, um, found that courage because some people do choose to heal by, you know, forgetting and putting, wrapping it in silence and, and putting it out of their mind. And then your approach is that you were vocal, but that you told your story, but that you also reached out to Mark and asked for his story as part of your healing process. Yeah, and that part really terrified me because when I started working on this, it was, I mean, it's always hard to date when you start working on a creative project because you've been thinking about it for a long time, usually in the back of your mind. 
But when I was on tour for the first book for The Glass Eye, it was October of 2017. And I was at Women and Children First in Chicago, a feminist bookstore. And someone had asked why the scene of sexual assault, you know, it's with Mark, it occupies just a page. And I got to, and at the time I got to thinking, well, that would have completely derailed the, the point of the first book, which was to be a book to demonstrate my love for my dad. And I then started to feel really angry about that. And it's, you know, during me, the height of the Me Too movement, Weinstein, like that news is breaking and a lot of people are angry. And I realized I was angry as as a, as a writer that I, in some ways I felt I couldn't explore it in a book, even though it did play a huge role. It just, it didn't make sense for that book. And, and so I, I started thinking about it more and more. I thought I was going to work on an essay collection dealing with mental health for the second book, but it, it felt like homework or the sort of, I don't know, as a kid, I was, I was the sort of kid who loved homework. So it, it felt like physics homework or something that I didn't like to do. And I was talking with my editor about this idea for the second book. And she's like, I love it. And then I, I got scared because I thought, well, what if he says no, it could all fall apart. And then that, to me, that made me uncomfortable, not so much as a, as a writer, but just as an individual, the ethics of it are justifiably a lot of women were really angry at that time. One of my closest friends, a novelist, she had told me we were talking about punishment and what that looks like for men accused of sexual assault and rape or found guilty. And she said, you know, if a few innocent guys get locked up in the process, oh, well. And I I told her, I said, but I thought you were, I mean, what about due process? And she's like, I'm too angry. I'm sick of it. And I, I got to thinking, okay, who are the people who are going to get caught up if, if we neglect due process and it's going to be primarily men of color, poor men, just a lot men within the LGBTQI community. And so the, that's what gave this project urgency and sort of compelled me to speak out about it. But in a lot of ways, I mean, when you're writing, I'm, I'm alone, I'm, I'm in my office, maybe my cats are there, but I, you know, I both am thinking about a reader and then I'm not. And so it makes the writing process, that solitary nature of it, it makes it a lot easier for me to be more vulnerable on the page, to, uh, you know, write on the page what I otherwise would have trouble saying aloud. It lets me organize my thoughts. And so I think that made it possible for me to write the book. And because a lot of people have pointed out the vulnerability and, and I think, I don't know, that just sort of came naturally to me. And I notice a lot of my students are concerned about when they write personal essays, they're concerned about what people will think reading the works. And they talk about being on social media and, you know, losing followers or, or things in those terms. And I think also not being on social media has helped me in a way. I don't begrudge anyone who is on social media, but as a, a writer that has, as a memoirist that has helped sort of preserve that vulnerability that I need in order to think through 
how I really think and feel about a particular event or news item or, you know, whatever it is I'm contemplating. And I also found it interesting in the memoir, you know, it's not, it's not black and white. There is all this room for complexity. And in your open conversations with, with Mark, and it speaks to the friendship that you had, and I guess have, that there he, it really affected his life too. And you really convey like this sadness and maybe, I mean, inability for him to like form relationships or, or move on. I mean, just go into that because it's interesting because most, you know, people who have been raped or violated don't have that courage and don't have that opportunity as well to... Yeah, and I think that's where the sense of failure with the project came about, the sense of it, it felt taboo, it, it, it felt very much like a, a forbidden thing to do, to, to talk with him, to hear his side of the story, to ask him what's impossible to answer in a lot of ways for him to answer why he did what he did. I mean, I'm asking him to reflect on something that happened that had happened more than 14 years prior. And it was hard because I, he knew I was writing the book. I was very upfront with him from the beginning. Part of the, that sort of gave me the courage that gave me the armor to talk with him because it was an excuse. I don't think I would have reached out to him otherwise. So speaking with him, having the book as the occasion, I think, helped open up the conversation. But there was also the concern of how much is he performing? I mean, I'm thinking about your interview with John Degato, where he, he talks about his method of interviewing people, right? Where instead of a tape recorder or a notebook, he'll take a walk with them for a couple of hours and to reach that human to reach the essence of who someone is, as opposed to having someone perform when they know they are being recorded or interviewed. And, and so that was part of my concern with the book, but that's also what fascinates me as a writer is artifice, is how, is how we, we do all perform to an extent. And how do we get at honesty? How does anyone get at honesty in their writing or convey a sense of self? And so really, I, I mean, I used I used Mark. We're, we're no longer, we're not friends. I think during the course of the conversations, he got the sense that we were, that this friendship, that we were becoming friends again. And that was hard for me because I just felt, I, I don't know, there was some, I, I did feel disgusted with myself doing it. And, you know, my friend, the conversations are in the book, but, you know, my partner, Chris, he's like, but you're not using him per se. He knows what you're doing. You told him you're writing a book, but I don't know there were times in the conversation where I, I think we both let our guard down or forgot about the project, or at least I sensed I did because as soon as I heard his voice, I slipped back into remembering the friend he had been and apologizing and making sure he felt comfortable. And, and that was stuff I didn't think I would do. That was behavior I didn't think I would do. So the book gave me the courage to reach out to him, but if not for the book, I, I really don't, I really wouldn't have done it. And I, I don't know how, 
he feels about the book that now that it's done, I, I haven't heard from him. I, I don't suspect, I mean, it, it, he's probably a, a poor judge of maybe whether he think the bo- thinks the book succeeds or not, simply because I, I can't imagine what it must be like to be written about in that way. But yeah, I mean, the book, it gave me the courage and it, I, I couldn't, I, yeah, I couldn't have done it without having the writing process there of having that ability to intellectualize as a means of distancing myself from what was a, a traumatic event. Looking back now at the memoir and having time to process those emotions during the book, you kind of were struggling because you didn't have much anger. You felt you should be more angry. What were those emotions after the book was released? Did you finally feel that anger or was there more relief? Maybe go into how you felt about that. That's a great question. Thank you. Yeah, with it, it came about really in interviews with uh, with people where, you know, by the time you finish a book, at least my experience is such, I'm so exhausted and I'm so sick of the book by the time it comes out. And, you know, that's not, your publicist doesn't want you saying that. That doesn't exactly, that doesn't exactly move product. So I, I found myself though surprised and rethinking the project when I was being interviewed and, and finding myself getting angry because I was asked questions such as, well, why do you think you were sexually assaulted as much as you were? Or I, I would get questions from, I think maybe what was most disappointing to me were when men would tell me they didn't know anyone like Mark. And that made me, ang- that made me really angry. And I, and it caused me to like think through more deeply, like why it made me angry. But I heard from so many women who told me, oh, I know so many guys exactly like Mark. And the distancing that I saw play out among men who'd read the book and, you know, and I'm also generalizing and it's hard. It's also a self-selecting crowd of who's, who's reading this book, but that urge to distance the, the men's urge to distance themselves, but then also women asking me why they thought I was sexually assaulted as much as I was and asking me to explain and, and thinking about, okay, well, why is the question not, why do we think sexual, why is sexual assault as prevalent as it is? Instead of asking someone who's experienced it, why do you think it's happened so much to you? So I think the anger that came about after I'd written the book and when I was on tour was, you know, this is a memoir. So it's about my individual experience. I am not an expert on how to end sexual violence. I am, I'm just not an expert. It's, this is one experience. And I was getting asked about how to solve the problem or people weren't really talking about the structural issues, some of them, you know, and I'm focusing on, you know, when I talk about anger, I'm focusing on the experiences that were the most frustrating, but overall, I should clarify that the responses were overwhelmingly positive and you know people did have intellectual and emotional like really interesting responses but I think it's the ones that I mean as a writer you're always remembering the what like the the negative review or the you know the negative response from someone but I think that's where the anger came out was the misunderstanding that 
I mean, a man was interviewing me and he'd asked me how to end, how do we, how do we fix the problem? And I said, well, I don't know. How do you, how do you think we should fix the problem? And he said, well, I don't, you're the expert. And I thought, okay, if, if somebody, would you, somebody who's been mugged, would you ask them like, Hey, how do we fix the problem of muggings? You know, like what? And so I think that was where the anger came about. And then after the book was done, I reached out to Mark because the Kavanaugh hearings were happening and I wanted, I was curious as to his take on Christine Blasey Ford and Kavanaugh's responses. And, you know, Mark said all the right things, but he didn't reflect on why I was asking him. And and then I got frustrated with myself in terms of anger. I thought, well, do I expect him to just keep apologizing over and over again? Like, what is it I expect from him? And that led me to thinking about something I don't, I don't think I contemplate enough in the book because it didn't really occur to me much until later is that of what makes a good apology? Like, cause I clearly, by the end of the book, I'm getting, I'm, after the end of the book and talking with Mark, I'm still angry and I'm still expecting him to apologize. And so that was in terms of answering a question about the the anger, there wasn't a self-directed anger or a disappointment and thinking about, okay, what, what else could I have included or what else could I have done? And I think a lot of writers have that, at least a lot of my friends who are writers talk about that after they complete a work, they think about what else they would have included, but that's what's interesting to me as a writer is you can return to the same material for a separate project. Like it's not as if you write about, you know, like my first book, I write about my dad. It's not like I can't return and write about him again. Like I'm just coming at something from a different angle. And so that's exciting. That's exciting to me. And I I try and be more patient with myself, but I think, yeah, I think the anger that came about was more so the lack of imagination among some readers to to remember that what they're looking at is a memoir it's not it's not a manifesto it's not about how to solve a problem it's just it's a ideally a work of art yeah it's very interesting also yes because this line between art and truth and I, I think again of John Degada you know would be between fact and truth and you know art and an account as you say and then there's that line between your you don't want it to be all your feelings you have to tell events it's it's just so interesting that question and then when you have different people's perspectives so again your approach is as you said controversial or it also allows for that that full view, you know? Yeah, that's a great observation. I mean, one of the controversial things I do is I'm, I'm basically fact checking the events of that night with, with the, with the perpetrator, right? Is this how it happened? You know, and I'm, I'm dismissing my own experiences, but it, it does get at, I mean, memory, right there. I mean, plenty of people, I don't want to, I'm just repeating what so many people have talked about in terms of how slippery and we all know that how slippery memory is and how it changes over time. But I think that was, I think John Dugata and this idea of truth and fact, I think, you know, what he's talked about in his work and explored in his anthologies is so crucial. 
And that is something that interests me. For this book, I really was fixated on this idea of facts as formal constraints. And I don't even, I mean, that's impossible, but I think there was a pressure on this particular story and thinking about the history of women not being believed. And there's this pressure on getting it precisely right. When I think about like when I was in high school, it's detailed in the book where a high school teacher rubbed his hand up my thigh and the detectives were so obsessed with, okay, well, how far did it go? Where did it stop? And it got me I'm like rethinking it. I'm overthinking it. I'm, I'm starting to question myself as an authority or as an authoritative narrator of this experience. And, and so it's that fact is formal constraint was something I aspired to, but I also recognize, I think what, what John Degata talks about is it's and what you talked about in your conversation with him in terms of the essence of a person, like what does, what does a fact tell us about something. And yet with this story, the idea of the facts felt so, or the attempt at getting facts felt so crucial to me. And yet again, like the sense of failure from the outset, we're not going to get at all of the facts. And so, yeah, and I think it's just very interesting. And I wonder what it is like to be, I mean, I write, but I don't write memoir, but people who write fiction are always on that other edge, you know, the other line. We can't say that of course, you're revealing something about yourself. And so I think it must be so fascinating to learn about your experiences, to relive your experiences. And it's like, you know, an unearthing or an archaeology. And so you've written also uh, about your father, your father, your father's death, your half sister's death, and the, the whole mysteriousness of that because she had died before you didn't know her so you had to unearth her life you know through second hand and and then your father who had passed away I think you were just turning 18 so then you know our impressions of events when we're that young are vivid but also you know strange to us in our adult lives so I just wonder what you feel like your experiences of your life would be if you weren't writing them that is a great question. I, I, cause I was thinking back recently. I mean, I don't go back, I don't reread old, old work, but I was thinking back about the glass eye and the ways in which, you know, I, I can't help but question like as a writer, as a memoirist, we're, sh- we're noting, we're looking for coincidences and by nature, the co- a lot of times the co- we're looking for patterns, and a lot of times those are coincidences. But they become the coincidences become meaningful because the writer sees meaning in them, and so then that gets at who the individual is. And yet, as you know, writing that first book, I promised him. I don't think he even heard me promise him the book. But you know, the night before he died, I told him I would write a book for him, either for him or about him. And I became obsessed with my half sister in a way where I started to question, was I that obsessed with her when I was growing up? How much did I actually think about her? Am I imposing meaning where there was none because I'm looking for a shape in the work as a writer? And I think that that sort of frightens me as a writer. And I, you know, as much as I say I care about getting the facts right or getting, you know, of course I care about getting at the truth. I d- 
did question a lot when working on that book and then even later thinking about it, like how much did, how much did it affect me at the time? How much like, or was I not thinking about it much and suddenly now thinking about it, there had been all of this repressed, this repressed grief or frustration or anxiety about, you know, my namesake about, about Jeannie. I think it's really hard as a writer to, as a memoirist to, to sense at what point are we shaping the material from our lives to make, to try and make good art and how truthful is that? And it's why I, I do like a little bit of, I don't like when, when something is too polished. I like when there's some sense of a loose end. I, I think if, if something is, I don't even know what perfection would be, but I, I think there is a way in which we can revise the life out of something. And that is, that was my fear with the second book. And it was partly why I, I think I wrote it as quickly as I did because I didn't trust myself. Because as soon as I write the material, there is that impulse to revise, to shape, to play with the acoustics of the sentences. And then at what point does that get into, at what point does it become fabrication? I, I don't, I don't know. Well, I'm glad that you said that because, um, you know, in terms of when one is teaching creative writing or memoir writing, I mean, I've certainly, I actually believe, I think you should always like learn your craft. Obviously, you know, one gets better at anything that one has done a long time. But once you're good at something, I kind of have faith with the unpolished thing. It doesn't, for me, it doesn't feel, feel quite unfinished because it's sort of, I like, you know, if you watch the birds in the sky, they're not like pausing and like, oh, I'm going to do that over, you know, because they would fall. Like it wouldn't be natural. It would no longer. So they're working in harmony, you know, they're riding the wind and it's just, it opens up for them and then they can glide. And, and if you take that metaphor to writing, I really do have faith. Uh, and I really, I like when people embrace their own flaws, because I think that's what's fascinating, not just in writing, but in art and not just in memoir, but in fiction and poetry and, and everything and singing and, or acting. There's just something thrilling about watching or reading, uh, listening to something where you feel it might fail. So you I don't, I don't know. There's so many people have said this almost a cliche, but when you can see the kind of cracks, you can, you can see the life in it still that you can see the life behind. And so I love that. But when I've said that before, people say, well, you're going to teach young writers bad habits because I think, oh, they can just dash off masterpieces. And I just don't think it's that. I just think kind of when you know what you're doing, you know how to be yourself quicker. I think that's absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. I, I completely agree with that. And what I noticed among my students is they've been, I don't know, the average number of standardized tests they've taken by the time they get to college. I think I read some, it's something like 129 standardized tests. So they are so accustomed to what is the right answer? What is the argument? What is the ending? What am I trying to prove? And so part of teaching them in teaching students in creative writing classes and then with creative nonfiction is for them to, to keep searching for the questions that interest them and to figure out whatever 
whatever they can do to lose themselves in the work to stop thinking about, okay, it drives, some of them, it drives them crazy, not having a rubric. So I just, I give them a rubric for the more anxiety prone among them, but I'm like, you don't have to follow this. This is just like a guide. But I think in terms, I love that comparison of the birds in the sky that they would just fall if they became too focused on what they were, if they became too self-conscious about what they were doing. I think with writing, what I'm the best, when writing goes well for me, it's when I reach that point at which I just, I lose track of time. I love that. Like, I love when that happens. It doesn't, it doesn't happen every day. I wish it did. But getting to that place where I'm completely immersed, I forget about all the other concerns that I have. And usually it's why I'm a very much a morning writer, but losing myself in in the writing process. I mean, it's the process, the, the creative process that interests me so much. By the time something's done, I, I feel I feel horrible. I, I have a friend who's an actor and she said what it's called. I can't remember what she called it, but she talked about actors getting this, they're known for getting very depressed after a project is done if they haven't started the next one. And that is absolutely what happened. It's what happens to me every time I finish something. I'm constantly like, what's next? What's next? But it's partly, it's not like what's next so I can finish what's next. It's like, what's the next thing I can spend time with? Because it gives me, having a creative project helps me I just feel more anchored. I feel more alive. I'm more aware of my surroundings. I'm, I'm taking in, I'm just, I've become more of a, a noticer. Like I, I think I'm, I just feel more in the moment. I suppose it's why, I don't know. It's why people maybe meditate, but I feel more at peace with myself when I'm, even though the creative process is such an agonizing experience a lot of the times, because you have days when for me, I write nothing where I'm sitting there and I realize, well, that was a day of thinking. If I'm so lucky to have a day, you know, I can, where I can do that and I don't have other distractions. Uh, and it's why the summers to me, you know, I, I teach are, are so precious and why as a writer, I, I get so frustrated if I don't have those days and I have to remind myself like, okay, even though you didn't write anything, that's still writing. And that's something I try and impart on my students as well is, you know, writing doesn't just look like what it looks like in the movies where the writer is, you know, has their pen and Philip Glass music is playing in the background. And it's, you know, it's a very dramatic moment. A lot of times writing is staring into the refrigerator or, you know, like just washing the dishes and, and the mind wandering. I mean, that is, that is what I aspire to when I'm working on something that I'm always working on it whether I mean to or not. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, that's that's really fascinating. And also just talking more about when you're writing, does the audience really shape your writing? Is it kind of a maybe the other way around? Because I often find when I'm writing, I struggle to write for myself and I feel like I'm writing for someone else. And sometimes that can be a hard balance. So how do you go about that? That's a great question. I think it as much as I like to say I don't think about audience when I'm writing. I mean, of course, I mean, I, of course I am with the second book. I was very self-conscious about audience. I was very, I was terrified to release that book. And so I'm thinking about audience a lot of times insofar as am I communicating all of the information that the reader needs to know? Like that's useful. 
if I start thinking about reception, like how are, are people going to be mad at me? Are people going to, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not a cool look like being a people pleaser. But it, as soon as I start thinking about that, that I, I get frozen as a writer. And so a lot of times when I'm writing, I'm writing to myself in a way I'm not writing for myself, but I'm not, it's not that I'm strictly writing for myself, but I'm writing to myself because I'm trying to get in my memoirs. I'm trying to get at the truth and, and like question, okay, every time I write something and I think I've come up with, okay, this is the reason why I think, is it the reason why? And that pushes me deeper. And so I'm thinking about readers insofar as, am I providing enough context for them to follow me into this new area? But I, the writing goes best and I reach that state or I, I reach that creative state where I lose track of time if I'm thinking, if I'm not thinking about reception, if I'm writing, if I'm writing to myself in a way, if I'm thinking, um, just trying to, trying to be more self-aware. And I, I talk with my students about this. Uh, this is kind of like veering away from your question, but the difference between being self-aware and self-absorbed. I think so many of them are very concerned about, they don't want to be self-absorbed. Like they're very, they're very self-aware people. And we talk about what does it mean in one's writing or in one's life to be self-absorbed versus self-aware. And that tends to, I notice, free them a little bit to pursue the stories that they want to write. And it also, I think, frees them from thinking too much about the reader, because in some ways that's kind of a self-absorbed because you're thinking about reception. So I don't, does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you so much. That was great. Jeannie Vanasco has inspired and encouraged many with her memoir writing. Her voice of vulnerability, boldness, yet immense contemplation has brought awareness and courage. Throughout reading Vanasco's memoirs, I was deeply moved by her blind commitment to tell both sides of the story, to tell the truth. Her recent memoir, Things You Didn't Talk About When I Was a Girl, speaks out on sexual assault through a personal, raw account of Vanasco's own experience as a victim and the man, Mark's experiences as the assaulter. These vastly different perspectives were so moving to me as a writer, to find the truth question it again and again, and find out how to share and process these emotions with others and yourself. Vanaska speaks on her own emotions, how she was not angry enough when interviewing Mark, and how much of that anger came after the book is released. Through Vanaska's voice of candor and bravery, I have found in my own writing to push for the truth, not just within reason, but within my emotions, memories, and relationships that are often hidden deep beneath the surface. Finasco's writing not only inspires others to speak out, it shows the many ridges in the healing process that is unique to each person. It shows the power of knowledge, even within memories and emotions. Finasco has shown me the power of writing to not only help others, but to process something for myself. In a recent piece of mine, I wrote a line. I never imagined that the bleeding of my heart would turn into the river that cleansed me free. That was greatly influenced by the motivation to find the healing within the hurt and to even more 
talk openly about it. It's interesting. So in addition to memoirs, and I don't know what your next book is, whether it will be a memoir or, you know, you also write poetry. So form also dictates. And so I find that, you know, there's a certain obligation with memoirs. As you say, it's an art form, but there is this obligation to be faithful to the story of, of real events. And and then with poetry, I don't know what the obligation is to the, you know, beauty and music. It's a, it's a different kind of obligation. So I just was wondering about your approach to those different mediums. And I guess what, you know, as you said, you always want to know what you're doing, working on next. So I don't know how that works with a memoir writer, because there's like, if you're not looking back, I mean, what, how, how has that worked for you? Yeah. So the, a lot of great questions in there. Well, what I, I haven't written poetry in a long time. I love poetry. I still read poetry. I, I find poetry absolutely crucial to my creative process in terms of, of immersing myself in, in others' work. I think the writer James Schuyler, the poet James Schuyler is hugely influential for me, the, the way in which his poems move the way he thinks on the page. And, and poetry is very close to creative nonfiction or to the essay form that is where you're moving by association through associative leaps. I think the best poems, or my, my opinion, the best poems move that way because there's a sense that the writer is losing themselves in the work and not trying to get ahead and, and figure out what the answer or the ending is. The other, oh, what I'm working on now. So I was just talking to my editor about the, it'll go under contract soon. I'm writing about silence. It's coming from a place of, it's memoir-ish, but I'm, and with my mom's permission. So my mom moved in, we turned part of our house into an apartment for her in, in 2017. And it's been a really hard transition for her. And the way in which my mom responds to stress or, you know, for whatever reason, she uses the silent treatment. I think the longest period of silence for just a perceived slight, longest period of silence went on for almost six months. And it was torture, like living in the same, under the same roof as someone and knowing that it's my mom and she's furious with me and won't talk. And so we've, you know, come out of it, but it fascinates me the, the intersections of silence and punishment why someone uses the silent treatment, but also just as a writer, absence, silence, I find that can be really generative to a point. I, I used to very, very much generalize and say, oh yeah, silence, it's so inspirational. And, but experiencing the silent treatment, I felt it was all I could think about. It was all that, that her silence. And so I started using the research process as a means of, or like facts to numb myself from, from thinking because she wouldn't engage with me. And then I, as, as a writer, I, what I like to do, I'm trying to think of how to, to word this. It's, you know, to turn distractions from writing into writing. I think that's what I'm interested in. And doing most. And so sometimes like the books, that's why I guess both of my books in some ways unfold in real time or, or seem to. I mean, The Glass Eye unfolded over many years through many different genres. It initially started as poetry. And so this next book started from a place toward the very end of her silence when I just decided, you know what, I'm going to lean into it. I'm going to write it. Maybe I'll do nothing with it. But I'm really fascinated about this history of, of the silent treatment. And, and it's 
lot of its origins in the prison system and, and what silence does to an individual when it's used as punishment. And then it moved in. And now that my mom and I are talking, you know, we're, we're speaking openly about the silence. She's answering my questions. I'm, I'm writing about her childhood, but I'm also, you know, weaving in research. And so it, it is this hybrid, hybrid work, but poetry is, I mean, I, I often go back. I, I wish I, I don't know why I don't really write it anymore. I read it all the time. I guess I try not to see genres as that separate from one another. I mean, it sounds like I, a lot of writers will say that, but I do, I think that's partly why I have drifted from poetry is just that I like, I like writing in prose. Obviously there are prose poems, but I, I like writing from life, but also weaving in research and reflection and I don't know, I mean, you can do those things in a poem. It's weird. It's like, so, that, so I think that's why I don't necessarily think specifically, okay, I'm going to write a poem. And whenever I used to do that, like when I'm going to write a poem, it would, that's like one of the most stressful things for me because there were all these expectations. And I just, I guess I revere poetry so much. I hold, I hold it up so much. And that's maybe partly why I don't, <laughs> I don't write it anymore. And speaking of, I mean, I think the place of childhood always uh, influences us all and it clings to us wherever we go in the world uh, and your I'm, childhood as you've you know told in, in your memoirs uh, and also the, the place of childhood you're you grew up in a, an unusual house it's kind of like a fairy tale but it's kind of like a, a children's book uh, it had a life of its own yes yeah so the metaphor like the I just the the house where I grew up the inherently to me very metaphorical it had been cut in half and moved across town and put back together we don't know why my, my mom wasn't sure why she lived in that house almost her entire life and so it was uneven and you know you couldn't hang a picture straight I mean it wasn't so on it wasn't like Alice in Wonderland like things were sliding off the table but but it was it was off and you know, as a writer, as a memoirist, you're, you're mining your past and looking for, at least I am, the, the metaphorical range in particular experiences. And so there was also, I mean, I remember when my, when my dad lost his left eye to a rare disease and, and needed to get a glass eye, that was even like, to me, very metaphorical. It's not even really made of glass. And, and so then I think about, well, okay, glass implies the ability to be broken. And, and so then there are all of these different ways in which I look back at my childhood, almost as looking for not archetypes, but seeing the, seeing the symbolism that's there, but trying to, for me, I, I like when metaphors are acting in place of language, when you can't precisely put into words, the, when you can't precisely put in something into words, I think that's when metaphors work best. That's what I, I love about metaphors is they can't, the best metaphors, they can't be precisely parsed. And so it's like the unevenness of the house, you know, as you, you had mentioned. And I think about my dad's I or the letter I that was added to my name, like just all of these ways in which something can mean more or seem to mean more than it does. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. And looking back to your childhood, did you know then that these were all going to be things that you wanted to write about? Was that always a passion that 
led you to where you are or was this something you've discovered later when you were looking back and reflecting? Yeah, I, I loved to write when I was a kid. I always loved stories and, and, you know, my, my parents would often tell me stories. We'd sit, they'd sit in the back porch. We had this aluminum glider and they would tell stories about their lives and were such great storytellers. And I think that really influenced me. And then as a kid, just being, you know, teachers telling me, oh, you're a really good writer. And, and so then like that encouragement, it's why I definitely, I, be, I believe so much in encouragement in teaching, especially because it's, I think encouragement can really, that plays a crucial role to me in the creative process. And thinking what Gertrude Stein said, it's something like, it's what a writer needs, praises, not criticism, praise, or, or something like that. When I was a kid, I, I think it was just that encouragement from my parents, from teachers, from other students. And, and I just, I just enjoyed it. There was a way in which I, again, like that feeling of losing oneself, that was really exciting to me. And I think reading is what did it for me too. Just going to the left, my, both my parents loved to to read. My, my dad didn't graduate from college, from high school. My mom didn't go to college, but they were very, they, they were very avid readers. And so that like reading a book and losing myself in books or spending time with another consciousness, I think that really, that's what influenced me to want to write. And then to look at my own life as for a long time, I had trouble acknowledging I was going to write I was going to do personal writing. I felt very self-absorbed. So I did try out other genres. I thought I would write poetry or fiction. I, I never really, not until I was in my late 20s, did I finally say, okay, I'm writing a memoir. And even that I didn't tell many people. I was very embarrassed. So I, I think from my childhood, it was just, yeah, it was encouragement from others. And then, and just spending time with, with books and losing myself in other people's language and seeing what was possible. I think one of the most um, magical stories for me, maybe a story that made me want to become a writer is a very famous story where the, the girl is wearing a ribbon around her neck and she doesn't explain why she's wearing the ribbon. At the end of the story, she takes the ribbon off and her head falls off. And I'm like, oh my God, you can do that. And like, you can do that in the story. And, and so reading things like that, that seemed very magical, that I think that excited me. And I was also kind of a, a, I was a more shy kid. And so I, I liked spending time by myself or with my, with my pets. And so it, it was a way to feel, I think, less alone. Yes, that marked my imagination, that story as well. I mean, the things that, God, I made my father retell that story to me because <laughs> kind of, it was so strange. And and I think that the, she did the big reveal, at, you know, I think she had been married to her husband, well, the, the version that I heard anyway, had been married to her husband for several, like it was like towards the end of her life, she'd been keeping up this that's the one I know. So she yeah. ribbon, this magic ribbon, the yellow ribbon, as I was told, it, had been keeping her head on for like 80 years or something. So I don't know. Well, there must have been some super glue in this days. <laughs> <laughs> I, but it's it's strange. Yeah, that used to terrify me. But I so I loved my father to tell me that one. And another one about a, a beautiful woman hitchhiker who actually had deer, deer hoofs. And she was murdering everybody in this Indian village. Oh, I love that one. It terrified me. 
Oh, I want to know that you have to email me that story. Tell me what the story is. I want to read it now. That sounds amazing. <laughs> well, we kind of have these kind of, well, I did anyway, kind of gruesome imaginations a little bit. When we, when we were very young, we loved to be frightened. I, I think for some of us, it never goes away. So, but I liked what you said about teachers and it's about the patience and the encouragement. And, and so you've, you've spoken about, I think your parents or teachers to you, or if you want to honor some of the teachers or lessons, or even teachers in the form of other writers that, you know, really, you know, like lessons that have stayed with you and, and helped you make you the writer you are today. Yeah. I mean, I think in some ways it's the lessons that were like the received wisdom that hadn't I hadn't really challenged and that 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 kind of made me a writer it was the stuff I, I've been working against or resisting I you know like the show don't tell or, or certain rules that are just you know as a kid I remember being told that in an English class when I was in grade school or junior high and and things like that and there's a rationale behind some of those lessons but I think sometimes it's, it's the, the advice we're given that's bad advice. That is often the, the most useful tool because you're think because and you start to think critically. That's what I, I, it's also why I like to assign works to students that maybe I don't love, or I disagree with in terms of their ethical or artistic approach. Cause that's exciting. It's exciting that that disagreement that comes about in the classroom. But teachers who, I mean, I had great teachers growing up and certainly my parents are as, you know, they, as in terms of teaching me about storytelling, just by my listening or them taking me to the library all of the time. In college, one of the most crucial teachers for me was her poet, Mary Kinsey. I, I had her in undergrad. And she was an amazing teacher. I mean, in terms of not being prescriptive, asking questions, recognizing. I remember she gave us this assignment in poetry class. It was, we were supposed to bring in notes toward our, our way to write a long poem at the end of the poetry sequence. It was a year long sequence. And I, everyone else brought in these very neat outlines. I saw them get it out. And I was like, oh no, I brought in a folder and it was a mess. There were like sentences cut out. I had like, it was just notes. They were fragments. There was no organization. I thought, oh gosh, I did this all wrong. And when I met with her, she's like, no, you're the only one who did it right. That's what I wanted. I I didn't want something mapped out. You know, and that I think helped me understand by her just saying that, not telling me, not telling me what she wanted, not telling us what she wanted per se, letting us interpret an assignment that as a student, that's one of the scariest assignments because, you know, you, there's a, there's the power imbalance, you get a grade, like, you know, but those are often, I think the best assignments is that way in which the student can interpret what you mean. And so I think Mary Kinsey was amazing. And then John Keane, who now he teaches at Rutgers, an amazing, oh my gosh, amazing writer. I used to wonder every year, I'm like, when is he going to get a MacArthur Genius Grant? And he did finally get one. He was 
just the, the stories that he assigned in our fiction class. And I took a class called situation of writing with him and, but the, the writing life, what does that look like? And he was just so instrumental through his encouragement. And there was another writer at Northwestern who really meant a lot to me, Reginald Gibbons, brilliant writer across genre. I don't know. I just had the, the teachers were so, all, all of them were great. Like the teachers were so invested and, and there was a sense of freedom in the classroom and valuing what you said. And, and none of them seemed to be searching for students to provide like the correct answer. Like they really encouraged, they really encouraged creative thinking. And so that I still like the, the teaching that I received in undergrad has that has stayed with me as of all of my course packs, like from those years. I mean, it's, it's just so valuable. I've heard that. I've heard so many good things about the teachers at, at Northwestern and, and yes, it's really, I, I think the sign of a, a great teacher is that they allow you to teach or learn for yourself and they just liberate your imagination. And I think that's also the sign of intelligence is when it's not, you know, you find your own way. I really believe, I really believe creativity and imagination is kind of intelligence because otherwise it's, we're kind of like machines or robots. And so, you know, also with this project, as well as being interested in creativity, we are, you know, concerned about the future. We think about education and our different systems and how we might improve them. Of course, the importance of the arts, but the things also what we'd like to change in society. Uh, yes, and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation. So yes, big question, but, you know, as you think, think about the future, what is the importance of the arts for you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Oh, that's a big, it's a good question. (laughs) Very big question. I know I keep pointing back to that. I've listened to some of your interviews, but pointing back to that interview with John Degata, where you're talking at the end about writing, I think he was writing political writing and, and can there be good political writing or writing toward the, the specific moment? I think, and I, I don't I want to say anything that's very prescriptive, but I, I think it's hard to, I think about this a lot and the climate disaster, right? Almost every day I'm thinking about how can I bring some of these larger structural issues into writing that is seemingly unrelated, like finding those connections or using these bigger um moments to inform this like the seemingly smaller angles that we're pursuing in our lines of inquiry and in our writing but I think a lot of the young people I, I'm teaching that, that they are doing this I, I see them they it gives me hope they're so empathetic and engaged with current events and I, I think just following it is I think it is crucial to engage with with the events of one's time and, and writing because it's impossible the idea of writing for posterity. I mean, what does that even who decides how, what does that even look like? So I, I think for young people, maybe not to get too caught up with that idea of writing for posterity if they do, I don't, I don't know. But for the ones who do, but just recognizing that the time one lives in, it's so crucial to engage with a lot of these, a lot of these issues. And if we don't, who knows how long posterity, well, who knows how long we have, who knows how long humans have. So yeah, it doesn't really answer a question. It's such a good question. It's one I will keep thinking about. 
Well, that's good. Yes, because that's, uh, of course, with the big questions, just like uh, your books and good writings, it's something that we have to return to. We don't know all the answers and that uncertainty, I think, is what makes them ex exciting and interesting. So thank you, uh, Jeannie Venasco, for uh, the honesty, intimacy and complexity of your memoirs and sharing your life with us so that we might better understand our own. Your writing helps us navigate and reach a deeper understanding of love, grief, healing and forgiveness and thank you for adding your voice to the creative process thank you so much for having me thank you to both you and nina for your amazing questions the creative process podcast is supported by the yan michelski foundation this interview was conducted by mia funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Nina Hook. Digital Media Coordinator was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.